I thought it was you. What the? What a pleasant surprise, Miss Steele. Just Anna. <clears throat> Just Anna. You're in here. I was in the area in business. Wait, dude, are you stalking her? This is clearly stalking. And if you weren't rich, you bet your sweet bippy she would have a restraining order on that face right quick. Dude, that's creepy showing up to her place of work. Super creepy. Welcome to the Cinema Psych Podcast, where psychology meets film. I am your host, Dr. Alex Swan, and today we are going to jump into a movie that I honestly never thought would be on this podcast, but here we are. We are talking about the first of a wild trilogy, Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, that book by E.L. James. Now, the writer of this was Kelly Marcel, and the director, who does not appear as the director on the second and third installments, Fifty Shades Darker and Fifty Shades of White Caps, I don't, uh, I'm not entirely sure what the third one is called, Uh, you can let me know in the feedback, (laughs) but uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, Sam Taylor Johnson is the director, like I said, doesn't come back for the second or third ones, stars Dakota Johnson, uh, the daughter of Don Johnson, and um, stars Jamie Dornan. I gotta tell you, uh, not a very good American accent on Jamie Dornan. Um, yeah, he is the eponymous Gray, Christian Gray. And then some other uh, some other f- famous people sprinkled in here. Jennifer Eels in it, Marsha Gay Harden, Luke Grimes, and um, that's pretty much it. I mean, there's not a lot outside of Anastasia Steele and Christian Grey in this movie. There's very little outside influencing. It's just really a back and forth of those two people. Oh boy. Uh, and there's a lot. There's a lot that um, we are going to talk about in this episode. And a word to my listeners. One, spoiler alert. But two, the content that we talk about on this podcast um, in this particular episode may be uh, difficult for some to hear. Uh, because we will be talking and approaching various uh, various concepts and topics like sexual assault and uh, among among the like. So that is my warning for this particular podcast um, versus any other uh, podcast. Uh, we will be talking about some heavy, heavy topics. And with that, let us jump right into it. My guest host today is Dr. Kirsten 
Buckman. She is an associate professor of psychology at Valley City State University in rural North Dakota, where she teaches a variety of psych courses in uh, in the curriculum. A few of her favorites are introduction to psych, social psych, and a special topics course she designed about her research area, Intimate Partner Violence. She has been teaching full-time for seven years and has held faculty positions in multiple states, including her home state of Kentucky. She earned a master's and PhD in social psych from the University of Oklahoma. Kirsten, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Alex. You bet. I am happy to have you on. So as I ask all of my guests, before we jump into the movie uh, that we are discussing today, Fifty Shades of Grey, I sort of want to ask your overall thoughts about film in general, just as a general moviegoer, and then... Uh, if you do, or when you do, use film in your teaching. Yeah, so I have described myself as someone who's pretty much willing to try anything once in the classroom. And I realize that there are a plethora of tools and resources available to educators. And I strive to be very intentional about selecting those that work most effectively for my students in very specific contexts. I teach uh, primarily by asking a lot of uh, commentary from my students, like a conversational style, and I provide lots of real world examples and stories. um, So it really drives home those concepts. And I personally feel that as psychologists, we are uniquely positioned uh, because I do feel that psychology is truly all around us. Right. And to this end, I frequently incorporate movie clips into various lectures. Um, although I know that this is all about the full length film. Um, <laughs> and the very first time that I ever decided to include a full feature film was actually a children's film. It was The Lorax by Dr. Seuss. Um, I just happened to be channel surfing one day. And um, if you're familiar with that film, there's a scene where uh, one of the main characters, the Onceler, is singing uh, a song that's called How Bad Can I Possibly Be? Mm -hmm. And I was teaching motivation and that song just resonated with me as, oh my gosh, this is a great example for the different kinds of motivators we can have. And I just was immediately drawn into the rest of the film. And I started looking at it from the lens of a psychologist. And so it was toward the end of the semester and I decided that I didn't want to change the nature of the uh, total points in the course. But I was like, you know, just for an extra credit assignment, I'll offer my students that they can you know, watch this movie and reeling, uh, realizing that they probably had seen it before, but I wanted them specifically to talk about uh, their choice of three concepts at least of um, related to our class that they found in that movie. And it was extra credit in the semester, didn't know how many, but to my surprise, um, quite a few of my students did actually take me up on that offer I should note that it wasn't many extra credit points. So it wasn't like the people that really needed these extra points, as we know, that (laughs) typically happens. Um, But I was really impressed with all of the different concepts, many of which I hadn't even considered myself. And so I decided, you know what, I think I'm going to incorporate this into other classes in the future um, and have it as an actual assignment. And my students have really appreciated that. That's awesome. Um, first of all, two, well, two things. First of all, love the, uh, and I imagine this is the remake of the Lorax, so not the 1970s 
uh, animation. No, this was the this was the one from this current century. Yeah, yeah. awesome. And and Ed Helms does a fantastic job as the Onesler and spe- specifically singing that song. Um, and I've used it in in learning before because of of the yeah. various concepts of um, like operant conditioning uh, in that sure. film too. So it works with motivators, of course. And um, the second thing is that I. I love the paper idea uh, because that has primarily been my film analysis assignment over the last, I want to say, two, three years. Uh, Choose three concepts from class, apply it to scenes, and, um, you know, write a two, three-page paper. Not a lot. And I I really love the little added tidbit that you added at the end there, which was that it wasn't for a lot of points and you still got – more than you expected, which is it show, tells you the power of using um, a medium, an art form like film to express uh, these psychological concepts and, and asking your students, hey, go find those. Because, I mean, that's that's why I like using that assignment, because it requires them to think about the film in another way instead of giving them a cookie cutter kind of find the scene where they talk about X. It's like, well, can you find X in the entire movie? Um, so I, I love that. It's that's that's so awesome. Um, what other films have you used in the past? I'm I doubt you um have or will ever use our are the film we're talking about today in class. Um actually I have. You have <laughs> I have, yes. Um and- <laughs> Really, I don't explore a ton of uh, full-length films, but this one, uh, let me tell you a little bit about why I I have incorporated this one. Um, So as you mentioned to our audience, I am an experimental social psychologist by training, Mm -hmm. and my research area is the influence of culture of honor on relationship violence. Okay. And as you also mentioned before, I found myself in various teaching-focused positions, and um, to that end, I have a lot of teaching responsibilities, but I also do find myself in plenty of opportunities to uh, supervise individual or independent research uh, projects from students, and I still try to stay current on my research. Um, it just so happens that when uh, Fifty Shades of Grey came out, uh, while it was taking the world by storm, uh, I actually was teaching social psychology, and I noticed that there were uh, plenty of opportunities to incorporate into that class. But then shortly after, I actually had the opportunity to design a new t- special topics class on intimate partner violence. And oh, so okay. I have yeah. incorporated it into that class. Yes. And um, I, I assume it comes with the, you know, the standard of warning, like, you know, this is this is an R-rated movie. But honestly, there were a lot of people at the MPA who wanted it to be NC-17. Um, I read that. That was um, that was interesting. Yeah, it barely skirted, barely skirted the MPAA. And of course, if anybody is familiar with the MPAA, they don't really have a set of codified rules for um, many ratings like PG-13 and uh, R has to do with the amount of F words that are said. Um, because if you say it more than once, then you're automatically an R rating. What kind of what kind of standard is that? That's weird. But but this one, particularly with the amount of nudity and sex scenes in the film, 
it was it was almost NC seventeen. So I'm assuming that like you had to get um some you know some buy in uh with this one, right? Even though everyone is an adult over the age of seventeen, over the age of eighteen, there's still some buy in, I would imagine. Absolutely. So that was uh, my initial response certainly was, you know, this was actually my first full-time teaching position and I didn't want to get myself fired. Mm-hmm. Um, so I talked with my department chair and um, there was a lot of support at that level. And I, you know, obviously recognized the importance of giving warnings to students saying, you know, we're going to be discussing, um, you know, watching scenes from a movie that might make you a little bit uncomfortable. We're uh-huh. all adults here. Um, and again, I think without that support from that department chair, um, this probably, this podcast probably wouldn't have even be happening. Because <laughs> I, I was given that latitude. Um, so I'm very grateful. And yeah. again, I think it's really important to create that safe space for discussing um, relationship norms. Like what does love look like? Yeah. And um, as we'll get into, I'm sure, um, you know, what, what does the media do to kind of twist our version of what love is? And, and so I really value the opportunity to have that discussion in the safe environment of the classroom uh, to explore, you know, what are our own perceptions of what relationships look like based on our own experiences and what have others told us and what does the media tell us? And so it's really given uh, some very rich uh, discussion and interaction among my students. But absolutely, I would say that any scene from this movie, uh, some, as you mentioned, more uh, sexual in nature than others, mm-hmm. would need to have their own warnings and certainly buy-in from students and yeah. even administration. Right. Um, I mean, if I were to ever use this movie, it would be something to watch on their own time to be mm-hmm. honest. Um, but I can, but obviously the, there's value in, in showing clips and refreshing everybody and, and all of that. It, it's, um, it, I will be perfectly honest, dear listener. Um, not a fan of this movie for its filmmaking. Um, if you can even call it that it's acting. If you could even call it that soundtrack it's odd. Um, and uh, among the other things. So I will un- I will be less likely to be charitable for this particular film that I have had in the past. Although, I mean, on the show, if you've been a faithful listener for um, years now, uh, I have I have thrown movies under the bus. This is one of those movies. This is one of those movies. So why don't we jump into it? Um, Because there is a lot. There is a lot uh, in this movie. It's two hours. It came out in 2015, so it's not even that old. So let's jump right into it. The biggest thing, Kirsten, is that um, the series of books written by um, E.L. James uh, is about a guy, Christian Gray, who apparently has amassed a fortune um, in some sort of industry. I'm not sure. I don't know why it's called Gray House. It reminded me of Random House. Yeah, like publishing. Yeah, Yeah. publishing. That's that's sort of how I felt, like what his his empire was, but I'm unclear. Um, And so it's about this guy, Christian Gray, um, and what is the particular... 
uh, thing that he enjoys, Kirsten? Uh, sure. So um, that would be BDSM. And um, depending on which sources you look at um, and what time period you look at, because this has uh, shifted in recent years, um, the right. B stands uh, sort of as a group for bondage and discipline. Mm -hmm. The D is for dominance and submission. And then the S&M is uh, sadomasochism. And um, that's actually a point that I wanted to make here, Alex, is that um, the BDSM community came out very strongly against this movie and the right. way that it was portraying uh, their community, uh, which leads to, I feel, a very uh, sort of broad discussion of stereotyping, uh, sure. which we know is an important concept in uh, social psychology specifically. But, you know, if people's only Inter introduction or even interaction with BDSM is the way that it's portrayed or characterized in Fifty Shades of Grey, then uh, that can be pretty problematic. And I actually had the opportunity to serve on a uh, an expert panel um, with some members of the BDSM community. They titled, uh, this was at that same institution, I'm not going to be vague. That was at Ball State University, um, which was where I held my first faculty position. And I was approached gotcha. by some uh, students. Uh, and I don't remember. I wish I could. I think it was something like the Activities Council. Um, but they asked me to serve on this panel of what they titled Fifty Shades of Consent. And so I came as the researcher, you know, kind of showing what was going on there. Um, and then we had some members of the actual BDSM community, and I thought it was a really good opportunity for them to sort of contrast the way that this is portrayed in the uh, movie versus what is actually happening. So one example is the messaging around consent. Um, the BDSM community is very, very uh, emphatic that consent must happen. There must be a safe word and there must be some way to signal that, you know, okay, I'm not going any further. And while that is loosely portrayed in the movie, uh, those people on that panel were very uh, clear to the audience that it doesn't come across in that way. Uh, so there was a lot of coercion, at least that's the way that the BDSM community has taken the way that they've been portrayed. And there is absolutely zero room for coercion in the actual practice of BDSM. It's just beyond this door. What is? My playroom. Like your Xbox and stuff? It's important that you know you can leave at any time. Why, what's in there? I meant what I said. The helicopter's on standby to take you whenever you wanna go. Could you just open the door?
called a flogger. Say something, please. Do women do this to you, or do you... I do this to women. With women. Women who want me to. You're a sadist? I'm a dominant. What does that mean? It means I want you to willingly surrender yourself to me. Why would I do that? To please me. To please you? How? I have rules. If you follow them, I'll reward you. If you don't, I'll punish you. You'd punish me like you'd use this stuff on me? Yes. What would I get out of this? Yeah, that's actually, that's, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so we learn in the middle, in sort of the middle of the, uh, in the film, that Christian um, was uh, born to a uh, drug addict of some kind. Uh, meth, I think, uh, was uh, sort of alluded to if I'm not mistaken, and he has some scars mm-hmm. on his chest, and she yeah. died when he was four years old and he was adopted by this the, these rich people. Um, and so he has significant trauma in his life, and then that that is um, that is reinforced uh, through his characterization in BDSM, and so the character characterization is then, you know, uh, consumed by the viewer as only broken people with highly traumatic childhoods engage in this, and that is clearly not the case. I mean, it, it's it's considered a subculture within uh, and I mean within erotic practices. So you know, there's a lot of role playing which you see in the movie. But it's very one-sided, right? Yes, definitely. And I think that that is, again, just driving that point home that if this is the only exposure that someone has to BDSM, it's a gross misrepresentation. And, you know, there was a a large and probably growing at one time uh, group of people that were uh, you know, going straight to the author and saying, you know, why did you do this? And she just just emphatically kept saying, no, it wasn't meant to be this. And, you know, I wasn't mischaracterizing and she just, you know, stood. And and I think that's a good example there of confirmation bias. You know, she's looking for any evidence that she has that her point of view is correct. You know, it's just, you know, some fictional tale. And, and they were like, no, but you're doing actual damage to our, our community, our our subculture. Um, And I also wanted to bring up some considerations, um, especially with some of the high profile cases that we've been seeing lately. Um, Again, my research area is intimate partner violence. And Alex, I think you made a great point that it's not the case that we only have people coming from broken backgrounds that are able to perpetuate this sort of violence against a romantic partner. Um, And in the last year, we've actually seen sweeping changes at the federal level to our Title IX uh, policies. And if you're not familiar with that, that's 
our sexual harassment, sexual misconduct, but also it includes things like dating and domestic violence. And uh, one that people maybe don't know much about is stalking. And that's one that uh, certainly is portrayed in the movie. That's another one that the author uh, vehemently denied that no, the Christian was not uh, stalking Anna, but there are many different examples of not just stalking behavior, but what uh, researchers and as myself, like social psychologists would call mate guarding. Um, And I think this is a good discussion point for our classes, for our students. Um, You know, first of all, do they know what mate guarding is? Mm -hmm. And that is driven out of uh, evolutionary psychology and parental investment theory. And this idea that the lesser investing sex is the one that has to really provide um, avenues so that they are safeguarding that person that has chosen them. And in the lesser investing sex in uh, humans is, of course, men. And so what we tend to see here is, is things that, depending on which way you look at it, can be construed as either, oh, he loves me, which I would argue um, E.L. James and others uh, who are proponents of this uh, film and the series would say, yeah, that's a display of love, uh, versus some more problematic things. Because we know, for instance, um, the mate retention inventory has been linked with actual violence toward partners. Um, And so that's a discussion that I've really appreciated having the opportunity to have with my students saying, you know, okay, for instance, Christian just randomly gives Anna a car, you know, as a present. Now, most people can't do that. Um, You know, I I certainly don't have the money that I could just gift somebody a car. (laughs) But some people would say, oh, that's because he loves her or because he cares about her. Um, Or I think it starts with the computer, but he also gives her a car and, you know, gives her these things and he's calling and checking up on her. I already mentioned the stalking showing up literally, like for instance, in her bedroom unannounced and, you know, totally startling her, you know, depending on how you construe that, some people might say, oh, well, he's displaying his affection for her. Um, But I would argue, and I think the research is pretty clear out there that that's borderline on, you know, these uh, offensive um, you know, like literally federally offensive uh, criminal behaviors. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Um, d- dude was straight up stalking. I mean, the cold open that I that I recorded for this episode uh, is literally the clip of him showing up at her work, and I interject saying, "Dude, you're stalking." <laughs> so you can go listen to that, um, listener, if you because you listened to it already. So I'm talking about it in the past, but yeah, such a stalker. Also, super problematic behavior about boundaries, yeah. right? We, um, you know, when when you um, are growing young humans um, to be good adults, you tell them about. Uh, boundaries and when it's okay and appropriate to touch somebody um, and we'll talk about consent in a little bit but um, when to um, engage in shenanigans with somebody versus when to when to not and be serious these kinds of things um, when to give people personal space and I gotta say the first half of that movie was Christian not recognizing boundaries Um, and kudos, I will give kudos to the characterization of Anna and her pushing back on that. Um, she doesn't go as far as what a normal person would do, I think, uh, in that case, which would be like, 
dude, you have a restraining order. This you this is not okay. It's clearly not okay. Um, there is at no point contact with police about this guy <laughs> because he is rich. Um, but the first half of the, and so her characterization when he keeps asking about the contract is, you know, her coyness. And she's just like, Oh, hmm, and then walks away. I think that was, that was brilliant. Uh, uh, writing, uh, on EL James's part to extend it I'm I'm obviously I know the literary technique about extending and making this like a uh, well we were talking earlier about what kind of genre movie this is and um it's certainly I just it just occurred to me it's a cat and mouse game yeah I think that would be a good description and as you're talking you know some of the sort of most famous Disney uh, heroines are coming to mind and you know sort of this oh you know uh, this unrequited love but Mm -hmm. again what message are we ultimately sending when the the female character ultimately gives in to you know the male's advances yeah and so she gives in um, and then she ultimately backs out because there has to be another book, another movie. Um, we were also talking about how the movie abruptly ends, and that is like honestly the cliffhangery of us, a cliffhangery of cliffhangers. Um, because she doesn't then like what occurs um, at the very end of the film. Um, so I, I, I give, I give. Um, the characterization of Anastasia Steele more props than I do the whole movie in general, because at least there are some sparks, some some tiny indications that um, there isn't a complete acquiescence of submissiveness, which is, of course, the role that Christian wants her to play. He wants her to be his submissive in the over of the BDSM. Uh, so she eschews that a little bit. And that was refreshing that it doesn't end with her like, oh, this is amazing. Yeah, right. Yes. Um, but, you know, speaking of that voice, one of the things that researchers uh, came out with in sort of the year or so following the release of this film were. Um, you know, the actual examples in the book and the movie itself of, you know, these kinds of actual violence, violent acts, the criminal offenses, um, because they wanted to make sure that teens, which I think we could argue that this is maybe the target audience of, Mm. again, showing what is love, what does it look like? Um, And I just want to make a note here and This is something that I always talk about with my students as well, that the films are always released either on or as close to Valentine's Day itself as they possibly can be. And again, that's just sort of maybe not so subtle message uh, from, you know, Hollywood and the powers that be that, oh, you know, you should come with your romantic partner. And if you don't have a romantic partner, you should come and watch this. And, you know, this is a lovey-dovey movie. And I think, as you've said, Alex, um, most of us would disagree with that assertion that it's actually not what love looks like and um, I will give props as you were mentioning to some of the ways that Anna doesn't acquiesce at first but then ultimately again if you know the rest of the story if you know the rest of the trilogy 
I mean, they go on and get married and they have the sort of happily ever after. And again, just to go back to some of those Disney heroine, um, you know, characterizations of, oh, well, if I don't give in long enough, then eventually, you know, what's going to happen to me? Um, And when message boards are filled with teens who are saying, I can't wait to marry my own very own Christian Grey, you know, that is like raising a huge red flag to researchers like me who know what intimate partner violence looks like and how it can masquerade itself as something else entirely. I think that's just a really dangerous message that we're sending to those teens. Yeah, I fully agree. Uh, And and the one thing that I wanted to add to that, because you brought up the other two movies, they're never going to be on this podcast. But what I will say about those two movies is that and the fact that they all get married, they get married and everything like that. And I can only imagine now picture this somebody who has never read this, these books and will refuse to um do anything but read the synopsis and so this is my challenge this is my challenge i will after we have this discussion i will see whether or not i am right the idea about the the other two movies um which uh, the seed is planted in this one is that um because christian has had a traumatic past and does not know how to quote unquote love and he's like i want this is just me this is who i am um, in his terrible American accent, uh, yeah, Jamie Dornan, um, you know, work on that one a little bit more. Um, the, uh, idea for her character is that now she is going to try to fix him. Absolutely. And I, again, I would say that that's a really dangerous message to send. Mm-hmm. Um, so for instance, we know that one of the worst things you can do for a couple that is experiencing intimate partner violence is send them to couples counseling because there's so much manipulation in most of those cases. And even very well-trained therapists can Mm -hmm. fall into the trap of the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I would, I would argue that again, maybe there are rare cases out there where you know, Anna or people like Anna could fix, you know, this broken man and come to love him and show him what love looks like. Um, But I would argue that that's a very dangerous narrative to perpetrate. Um, And I think it feeds into rape culture. You know, I mean, there's so many people, again, when I teach this intimate partner violence class, a lot of my students are surprised that we can even have something called marital rape. Right. And we know that and I know you mentioned and we've we mentioned before consent, but, um, you know, you can not consent in a marriage and right. that can still be rape against the law. Right. And hang on to that. I want to I want to jump into that um, particular idea about rape and consent uh, when we come back from a quick break. Hey, listener. Thanks for sticking around this episode. I hope you're enjoying it. Anyway, I need your help in growing this podcast's audience. In past episodes, I've asked you to share this podcast with five of your friends. Let's keep doing that. Share this podcast on social media, especially if you really liked an episode. Share that episode. Tell five of your friends or family if they have an interest in film or psychology, or even better, both. 
Growing the audience is our goal for the second year of programming. And so we need your help to get that done. Other ways to contribute to the podcast include tips to our PayPal, found on our website, becoming a patron at patreon.com slash cinemapsychpod, rocking some sweet merch from our Spreadshirt shop, and or leaving us a rating or review on your favorite podcast service. Now back to the show. Okay, we are back with Dr. Kirsten Bachman. We were talking about Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah, that movie, that movie. That series of books. Uh, so we, before the break, we just mentioned rape culture, rape and consent. And I think it's a pretty good topic to uh, flesh out completely, Kirsten, on um, what kind of consent messaging is in the movie. We mentioned it a little bit, but then also explore how Christian's background is indicative of a culture in the United States that is very broken and that that be that culture being rape culture and the idea around um, sexual violence, all of the ideas and behaviors around sexual violence. So in the movie, um, the MacGuffin, if you will, the um, the object which advances the story Um, which is not necessarily essential to the story itself, is the contract that uh, Christian creates for his uh, potential submissives. Um, And uh, the vast majority of the film is about, hey, did you sign that contract yet? Oh, I didn't sign the contract. Oh, well, you didn't sign the contract. I haven't signed the contract yet. I mean, how many lines were about the friggin' contract? Uh, And, and, um... Ultimately, in this film, she never does sign the non-disclosure agreement about being Christians submissive, and yet they do engage in sexual acts. Yeah, and so, again, I know we've talked um, at length about how the BDSM community was pretty outspoken against the way that they were portrayed, but uh, that's one credit, I think, that we can um, afford to the author and the uh, filmmakers here of the contract. That is very important, but as you mentioned, at least in this uh, film, she doesn't actually sign it, so they are engaging in things um, that, again, you could argue are non-consensual. So consent is a word that seems like it's really simple, but it's actually quite nuanced. Um, One thing that I think uh, is a theme in the movie is the use of alcohol. and I think that we should also pay attention to the age of Anna by comparison to Christian. Christian is much older. He's much more experienced. She's never had a sexual encounter of any kind. Right. Um, I think that it might not be, uh, you know, as apparent in the movie, but definitely in the books it comes across like this is someone who's never even had a boyfriend. So, you know, he is, he is her one and only like, this is what a relationship should look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think that we have to think about what message that's sending. So that's a good discussion that we can have uh, with our students is if you had no other romantic uh, connection before, and then, you know, this very wealthy guy starts having, uh, you know, sexual encounters and wanting to have you be his submissive. And I mean, 
I think there is like a, a, a play on, well, it's kind of exciting and enticing, but then I think that that line between, is she really able to fully give her consent is blurred. Uh, so he does use alcohol in some pretty stereotypical ways, you know, oh, have another one, have another one. Again, he's just throwing things around at her. And um, in some scenes, it seems like she's uh, less coerced than in others in mm -hmm. terms of you know her alcohol consumption um, but in others it's very clear that she would be what the legal definition would call her as incapacitated where she sure. is fully not aware of her senses um, in some cases not even conscious and then obviously not able to give consent um, I think when we think about consent we have to think about the history of where we as a society have come um, it used to be that yes means yes. So if I say yes, then I'm consenting to whatever. And if I'm in some way non-verbally agreeing, then, you know, consent is present. But yeah. there has also been a big push for the no means no. Right. And I think that we have to keep those sort of in connection with each other um, because I think each of them is missing an important element. So if I'm not saying yes, but then I am otherwise not saying no, what am I doing? Yeah. And that's where the law is is very blurred. Yeah. So when you think about the law and is this crossing that legal and the law, by the way, I'm talking about like the Cleary Act and the Violence Against Women Act yeah. um, that goes along with, or we see in tandem with Title IX considerations for the educational setting. Um, I think we shouldn't miss the fact that Anna is in an educational setting. She is in a university, she's going to school and um, it's actually a job that she starts uh, trying to interview him for when they initially meet and certainly not having any love interest at the beginning. Um, but then we all know where it goes from there. I think so there's, I think there's a case to be made, by the way. Um, uh, sorry to interrupt. I think there's a case to be made about Title IX, uh, a Title IX violation because um, Christian is a speaker at the um, commencement address that yep. she is attending as a graduate. And so, yeah, clearly something is being blocked there. Some some um, potential Title IX in, uh, thing there because he is not public about their relationship. Do they even have a relationship? He says he doesn't want to do relationships and yet takes a picture with her awkwardly, which was so, so strange. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and also on a side note, you don't go to a commencement. Uh, you don't are not the commencement speaker talking about your own initiatives. Like that was also very strange. <laughs> we yeah, need to have him give us, we need to have him give a speech. What do we do? <laughs> oh, he can give a commencement speech and talk about his initiative. But like what? No. Yeah. Anyways. Um, but to your, to your point, I think um, there's a, the, the nuance there is really important because um, the no has to, in my understanding, the no has to be very clear. And if there is no no, then there is no yes. That's correct. And so, again, I think like when we say the yes means yes, 
it's kind of like an asterisk, you know, you have to, okay, but, but what, how can I say yes? Um, and if I've said yes to one thing, I think this is where um, the law is quite clear. And I think that some people, you know, miss this line. We talked a little bit earlier about boundaries. Yeah. Just because I consent to one act does not mean that I consent to something else. And right. I think that the movie displays this um, in a really powerful way. In other words, you know, that she's, she says yes to something, or maybe she doesn't actually come out and say yes, but she somehow provides that nonverbal uh, consent. But then she is, you know, maybe pushing him away because she doesn't want something else. Or, you know, she's uh, backing away from him physically. I think another myth that we should uh, just explore and discuss here is this idea that it has to be forced um, and in most sexual assault cases, yeah. we don't actually have, you know, this physical force. And if there is any sort of holding someone down, it's as minimal as it's needed to be in order for them to do whatever act they're doing. Right. Um, and so I think, yeah, the yes means yes. We all understand what yes means. But again, you can say yes in different ways and you can say yes to one thing, but not to another but then on the no means no, just because I don't come out and say the word N-O right. doesn't mean that I am consenting and saying, yes, I want to do this other thing with you. Yeah. And so that's where I think we need both of those pieces. Yeah. And then there's an interesting scene in the, I think perhaps my favorite scene in the whole movie, and that's saying a lot, um, is the meeting scene. So I'll go ahead and play that particular scene here. Impressive. I've done this before. Business meetings, I mean. Oh. Uh, Miss Steele. Hmm? Your meeting. Page one. Strike out my old address and replace with a new one. An oversight. Duly noted. Page 3, section 1520. The submissive shall submit to any sexual activity demanded by the dominant and shall do so without hesitation or argument. <laughs> uh, turn to page 5, appendix 3, soft limits. With you. Find anal fisting. I'm all ears. Strike it out. Strike out vaginal fisting, too. Are you sure? Yeah. Same page. Is the use of sex toys acceptable to the submissive? Vibrators, okay. Dildos, fine. Genital clamps? Absolutely not. Consider them gone. What are butt plugs? You must go through quite a few non-disclosure agreements. My staff know only what I choose to tell them. Please resume, Miss Steele. <clears throat> Also on page five, there are some terms which need clarification. Suspension. Hanging on ropes from the ceiling. For what possible reason? For your pleasure. Really? And mine. Something to consider. No, hard limit. Is bondage acceptable to the submissive? 
I'm good with rope. Leather cuffs, handcuffs. Please lose tape. And uh, what's other? Cable ties. Can I just say how impressed I am with your commitment to this meeting? And in that spirit, I'm gonna throw in a sweetener. How about once a week, on a night of your choosing, we go on a date? Just like a regular couple. Dinner, movie, ice skating, whatever you want. Accepted. You're very kind. I'll suggest it in Appendix 5. So in, in that scene, um, there's a great negotiation that is a, that is occurring. And that negotiation is what you're just what, what you're explaining, Kirsten, which is that um, she agrees to some things in this agreement, um, but she does not agree to all of it. So she doesn't want to have um, various aspects of uh, Christian's entire BDSM repertoire um used on her she doesn't want all of it she doesn't think that some of it is appropriate for her and wants that as part of the never signed contract but it was her also displaying her ability to um advocate for herself which i thought was uh, like i said favorite scene um and that's not saying much it was one of the few scenes where she advocated for herself um, in a very uh, powerful way. But to your point about um, the the rape um, and uh, not uh, if I if I say no to one thing, it doesn't mean no to other things or yeses to other things. It just means no to the one thing. Um, and the amount of uh, control that you need to actually complete the sexual assault. Um, and that's because a vast majority of the sex in the movie um, is borderline, I would say, borderline um, relationship rape. Um, at no point does she – at no point does she – well, no, I shouldn't say that because at the end she does consent to go into the um, bondage room, the red room. Um, but – there is the her her first sex scene with him so her first sexual encounter i was aghast that he decided oh you're a virgin okay let's go like she didn't even get a chance to be like wait what are we doing yeah the i definitely think the the role of power and authority is not missed um, in this whatever we want to call the relationship or growing uh, interest between really from him to her. I mean, I think that in, in the opening scene, it's clear that she, you know, finds him attractive in sort of like a mysterious, like I'm kind of, I'm curious about you kind of way, but maybe not so much in a love way. Um, but then we can see that develop and certainly throughout the, the rest of the series. Um, but I think that that's, again, another important point for us to discuss with our students is 
you know, how much control does each party have in a romantic relationship that's either just beginning or that's well-established because control is one that we often see removed in that power differential um, in a cycle of intimate partner violence. And I think that's another good point for us to just remind students that, hey, it might not have seemed at the time that this was what that was looking like, but indeed that is an example of that, you know, power differential there. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, <laughs> this is this is me looking in, but I think um, when she first meets him, when she first meets uh, uh, Christian, um, he's alluring in some intangible way to to uh, to him, but he was not at all charming or charismatic in my in my view, and I think that. That was the wooden acting issue more. I don't know. Like I've never, I don't did not read the novels, so it's hard for me to um, imagine it any other way. But beyond that first meeting, I would not have expected if those two people were real. I would not have expected that to continue in the way that it did because he's. First of all, he's very dismissive um, and uh, curt. Um, And even though he gives her a second chance and then yoinks the paper to um, give her friend clear and and concise answers to all of her to her journalism uh, paper or whatever, um, he wasn't he wasn't that charming to me. Um, I wasn't like, oh, well, yeah, I can see what she sees in him because it was very strange, their first meeting, and then he goes and stalks her. So then I was like, Bop, I'm out of this. Well, I think that's a good point as far as, um, you know, the casting decisions. I mean, what little I know um, about what has transpired there is there was an active sort of hostility between those two characters they did not like each other at all and so they had to sort of play this in the movie as far as the the charismatic piece um you know it's been years literally since i've read the the novels and by the way i should mention i only read them because a graduate student said hey, Dr. Brockman, you know about the Fifty Shades of Grey series, right? And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And so then, you know, <laughs> the rest is history, so they say. But um, but when thinking about the the charismatic piece, I, I, I do seem to think that he was more charismatic being portrayed that way um, in her novel than he was in the movie. Um, but ultimately, from what I understand, the filmmakers decided that they wanted to see if they could sort of have this thing progress maybe organically, but not really. And uh, Mm. again, as a viewer, I'm not sure that it really um, did that job, but I will say that um, at least one spouse, when they were um, looking to uh, cast for the second movie in the trilogy um, really had a very hard no talking about consent um, that, you know, the spouse was not going to play that character because, you know, they had small children and, you know, what message was this sending? Um, If I'm not mistaken, that was Jamie Dorman's uh, wife who was like, no, Jamie is not going to be in this movie. Um, Mm. And, and yet (laughs) what we see happened is that he, he was uh, again in the movie. Mm. 
Mm. Um, so interesting sort of like real life tidbit in the way of yeah. you know, talking about power and control. Like right. I guess he won that that debate. <laughs> yeah. And that um, also plays into the whole uh, the he's rich and that's what he's got going for him. He he does have a nice body. OK, fine. Um make me feel bad about myself that's okay okay uh um, and then you know he is a high status figure whatever gray house is um and so i wonder and i don't know if this is in the backstory of the novels but i'm i'm really curious oh speaking of rape um christian was totally raped uh as a uh, statutorily by his um first foray into um the BDSM community um by his first dominant uh he says that he was 16 when he was first um made a submissive of this woman and um yeah totally nope you can't nope can't do that um so yeah i mean dude's got some dude's got some issues um and as uh says the issues to the viewer but not to Anna which I thought was just like okay if that was in the book shame on E.L. James also in the movie (laughs) what okay there are better ways to do that not to tell a sleeping person your life story and be like oh you're awake now oh I'm sorry I wasn't saying anything I, I hate that so much I hate it um, as soon as I saw it and like she wasn't stirring, I was like, oh, he's doing the thing where he's telling the viewer and then she's not going to know anything about it. It's awful. But in any case, um, I forgot my point. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. No. So the fact that, um, the fact that like he sees Anna, going back to the whole status and money and and dominance versus submissive kind of idea, um, the the fact that he has money, the fact that he has status, sees Anna as some diminutive creature, um, tells you a lot about his his character, who he is as a person, um, and who uh, general other allegories and analogies that exist in real life for this character and the finding of the submissive not even just bdsm submissive you know quote unquote but just like a submissive person somebody to be submissive um in a uh in a relationship i i think that was um very glaring in my mind um that she it acts very meek in the beginning of the movie but it's actually a trick because she's not that meek when it comes down to it, especially at the end of the movie when she's just like, no, you don't get to punish me. You don't get to do that to me. Um, I'm leaving now. This is the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it can't be missed that he, being Christian, really expects her to be an open book, so to speak. Like, he wants to know every little thing. He shows up everywhere. He wants to know every aspect of her life. Um, There's a lot of an element of control there. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But there's what um, I like to think of as a double standard in that any sort of push that she 
asks him for some, you know, just basic information. No, yeah. like that's that's off limits. Like we that's don't talk about me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's a, a good talking point um, discussing with students in that, you know, again, that power dynamic um, and also getting them to think about maybe some examples of people that they have met who might have a similar dynamic. And, and then again, that broad context of what does a healthy relationship look like and what might be some of those more uh, subtle or less subtle, you know, warning signs or red flags. Yeah, yeah. You, you hit the nail on the head with the whole double standard um, about their past. Like he shows up in friggin Savannah, Georgia, when he doesn't get a text back from her. He's like, nah, I'm going to go see her. Uh, it's like, oh, dude, space. Yeah stalking for sure yeah again if it's not seen that way by the viewer i think that that's another point for us to make with our students you know call it what it is you know that is a violation of of the law yeah that is that is very true that's very true so um to end on a lighter note i like to end on discussions on lighter notes especially with um the heaviness of such topics um so this is going to be a little bit out of left field, not in our notes or anything like that, but I, I, I was thinking about it. So in the movie, um, Christian's brother is dating Anna's best friend. And he is, um, uh, he, I, I shouldn't do that. Um, Christian is annoyed by this. So, my question to you, Kirsten, is who has the better relationship in the movie? Oh, hands down, his brother and the friend. That's that's a healthy relationship. And I think um, I'm glad you mentioned that because I had forgotten that sort of minor plot. But um, I think it's important because, again, to the the clued in viewer, you can catch that. And there is, again, that juxtaposition of, OK, look at this. And I think that that actually is really insightful for Anna to be looking at, OK, these are the kinds of behaviors that they are displaying. That seems really normal and yet why is he treating me these other ways and so she's she's not as you know meek as you mentioned um or naive as uh you know viewers might want her to seem i mean she she's starting to to get the hang of wait a second not every relationship looks this way yeah and um wow what a uh cool plane glider ride um yeah. also you really need to ask for consent if you're gonna do a barrel roll in a glider okay there's no coming back from uh there's no coming back from a missed barrel roll on a on a glider that's just falling yeah, yeah. yeah. i saw yeah. that and i was like um sh- you didn't tell her you were going to do that. She's going to barf all over this glider. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Well, I want to thank Dr. Kirsten Bachman for joining me to discuss Fifty Shades of Grey. Before we say goodbye, Kirsten, is there anything you'd like to uh, plug? Where can folks uh, find more about your work? 
Yeah, thanks. You know, I'm on a typical media platforms, LinkedIn, Facebook, ResearchGate, um, but I do have a personal website um, that is on Weebly. So that's kirstenbachman.weebly.com. And I do try to keep it regularly updated with, you know, my teaching. Again, I've taught across the curriculum. I'm sort of always developing new classes. Um, and to that nice. aim, I am pretty active with the Society for Teaching and Psychology, STP. And the I lovely post group. pretty frequently there yeah. on the Facebook page. Um, and I do have some uh, publications that are coming soon. In fact, uh, one about a seminar uh, talk that I gave at a teaching conference about that intimate partner violence class. So be looking for that. And then a couple ebook chapters as well. Nice. So I will link your website um with the show notes so everyone can just click click and find you right there and i'm assuming that those publications will be on the weebly site all right well that is perfect and uh, i want to say thanks again kirsten yeah, it was my absolute pleasure, Alex, to bring light to the important role that media uh, messaging, uh, like the one that we see in Fifty Shades of Grey, plays on a variety of concepts like uh, relationship dynamics and how they can be perceived, how we can perpetuate dangerous uh, stereotypes, and most importantly, perhaps, how psychology teachers can engage their students in productive conversations about what love is and is not. Awesome. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Until the next episode, thanks for listening. 